Today's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why should he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I was shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go, find the arrows. If I say to him, look, The arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are behind you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, 
Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the feast. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. This is God's word. Let me add my welcome. My name is Phil. I'm the Associate Minister. It's lovely to have you here or tuning in online. Let's pray, and we'll look at God's word together. Father God, whether we're familiar with these things or new to them, we pray that you would help us to have um, ears that hear, hearts that understand and can recognize truth, for we want to know the truth about you. And we ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, 1 Samuel 20, it's a good story. It's another gripping episode as we've been working through, but what on earth has it got to do with, uh, with baptism, with what we saw happen just a few minutes ago? It's a very different kind of ceremony. We don't shoot arrows at people, thankfully. It's going in water. It seemed quite disconnected, really. But actually, as I've studied it this week, I've realized it's enormously relevant to what Lizzie just did in the pool. And actually, it addresses a question which is central to anybody who is either calls themselves a follower of Jesus or is thinking about those things. See, baptism is the ceremony that symbolizes beginning to follow Jesus Christ, committing your life to Jesus Christ. And 1 Samuel 20, at its heart, is a picture of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, what it looks like. Let me go into that a bit more. I I mean, in in a room like this, I guess most people would call themselves Christians. And I know for a number, you'd say, actually, it's pretty straightforward following Jesus. 21st century London, it's not actually that hard to be a Christian. But if we're honest, the reason is that we just, we assimilate. We live like everybody else around us. And so the reason it's easy is because 
Well, it makes no difference to how I live. I just live like everybody else. The others, there'll be others in the room who'd say, actually, you know what, it's really hard. I find it a daily battle to follow Jesus because we've seen quite a lot of mockery and cancelling and rejection. And, and the big question is, is it really worth it? And as we look at 1 Samuel 20, we find actually it's addressing those very questions. We learn that to follow God's anointed King Jesus, well, it involves doing what Jonathan does, giving up my right to rule my life, metaphorically taking the crown off my head and submitting to and standing with Jesus, even when it costs me. But wonderfully, we also see you're not mad for doing so. You're not mad for doing so. For it is wonderful what Jesus gives us in return, forgiveness and eternal life. And so um, I guess if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian tonight, I hope that you'll see by the end why it is that I would say you should put your trust in Jesus. Now, um, of course, 1 Samuel 20, you'll have noticed as we read, it didn't mention the word Jesus anywhere. So why am I saying it's got anything to do with him? Well, Jesus taught that the whole Old Testament, that's the, the first half of the Bible written before he came, it all points to him. He's the fulfillment of everything that happens there. And in particular, the Old Testament is full of ceremonies and events and people who are like working models to help us understand who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. And one of the key pictures that points to Jesus is David. Uh, David is anointed king. And that word anointed, actually, it's translated Messiah or Christ. Same word. And when uh, Peter preached to the crowds in Jerusalem at Pentecost, for example, just after Jesus rose from the dead, he says these words. I won't explain everything, but you'll see that he basically says, look, David, Jesus is who David points to. Uh, David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you a, your enemies a footstool for your feet, quoting what David says in Psalm 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So he said, look, David is... The fulfillment of David is Jesus. And so what we learn about David in this passage and how Jonathan relates to him, it's a picture to help us understand what it means to recognize Jesus as king. Uh, we've been away from 1 Samuel for a few weeks, so let's just remind ourselves where we are. Uh, we're back in this book that records the history of Israel uh, from around 1000 BC. And the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, they tell the story of how God provides the king that his people need, a king for the people of Israel. But it's a pretty epic saga that is involved before the right king appears. The, the first king the people choose, a guy called Saul, he looks the part, he's great for the PR, looks good on camera, but inside he's corrupt. And it, he leads the people away from God rather than in obedience to God. And so in chapter 15, God rejects Saul. And in chapter 16, God sends Samuel to anoint the new king, David. And as David increasingly acts like the true king, he defends the people, uh, killing the, the giant Goliath. As he increasingly acts like the true king, Saul becomes increasingly jealous of this young man, David. Uh, what makes it a little bit more complicated is that Jonathan, Saul's son, is David's best friend, a camaraderie that's forged as they fight in battle together. And at this point, as we dive back into the story, Saul has tipped over into full-on paranoid dictator mode. Think Idi Amin, think Putin. He is, he's really lost it by this point. Uh, already he's tried to kill David six times. He sent him out on some extraordinarily dangerous missions so the enemy will kill him. He sent assassins to his house so somebody else will kill him. And three times he's flung a spear, his own spear, to kill him himself. 
Let's, uh, let's rejoin the action at the beginning of chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What's my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why should he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes and has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he'll be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. So in chapter 19, verse 6, Saul had said, okay, look, I'm sorry. I chucked a spear at him. Bad behavior. My bad. I'm sorry. Promise I won't do it again. And, and Jonathan, lovely man that he is, he just can't believe that his dad's lied. He said, oh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Surely he said he won't hurt you. But David swears, look, Jonathan, you don't know your father. And then given the choice between family loyalty and loyalty to David, Jonathan decides he will trust and he will serve David. Verse 4, Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow's the new moon feast. I'm supposed to dine with the king. Let me go and hide in a field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, well, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, said Jonathan. If I had the least inkling my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? Now, at this point, David is just hugely vulnerable. All he has, verse 8, is the promise that Jonathan has entered a covenant, a binding commitment with him. Now, that word kindness that he uses is hugely significant in the Bible. Translate the the word chesed, which is the word God uses again and again and again to describe how he relates to you and me. Committed, faithful, loving kindness, which will never, ever run out. Now, Jonathan has made this binding commitment, this covenant with David. He made it in the last chapter, in, uh, in chapter 18, sorry, two chapters before. And now he reaffirms it in these very important words. Verse 10, David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went out there together and Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Now, it's easy to miss the shock of this, but Jonathan is the heir and he is committing to serve a fugitive who is his rival for the throne. That is not normal behavior. Uh, being something of a nerd, I am a big fan of the Rest is History podcast. Uh, it is brilliant. And one of the episodes is about the infamous mystery of the princes in the tower. 
So you'll recognize them um, from history lessons, maybe. Uh, Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, uh, with magnificent hair, you've got to say. And, um, and there, Boo, is Richard III, who is really the kind of comic book arch-villain of English history, thanks to Shakespeare depicting him as this sort of malevolent, scheming, sinister hunchback. Now, why am I telling you this? Because um, they're towards, uh, in the second half of the podcast, they basically conclude, yep, he killed them. He had them killed. No questions. He had them killed. But then they get onto the question, was he right to do so? Was he right to have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old boy smothered to death? And they said, of course. He'd have been mad not to. I mean, you can't leave a rival for the throne with a better claim to the crown alive. You're never going to rule if you let them live. You've got to kill them. I mean, it's just, that's just standard behavior. It's what you do. Lesson one in your BTEC of how to be a successful monarch, if such a thing exists, is eliminate all rivals. It's what you do. You know, read history. Kings and queens who last, who survive on the throne, they do two things. They bump off anybody else who might have a claim to the throne, and they form treaties, covenants, alliances with people who are powerful to keep them protected. And Jonathan does the opposite. I mean, think of British history. Henry VII, what do you do? You, you marry your son, Henry VIII, to Princess Catherine of Aragon so that you've got the Spanish on your side against the French. I mean, most of history is about us and the French. Sorry, Nicola, but it's, you know, that's just the way it plays. That's just how we live. And Jonathan is here, and he chooses to make a covenant with a nobody, a fugitive, a man with no political power, no aristocratic family, no foreign connections. In realpolitik, David offers him nothing. And worse still, Jonathan's a rival for the throne. Jonathan has, a, in one sense, a stronger claim to the throne than David. So why does he do that? Well, Jonathan can see past political realities. He can see that true power doesn't lie on the throne in Rama. True power lies on the throne in heaven. He knows that Almighty God has anointed David, has promised David the throne. And so, metaphorically, he takes off his crown and lays it before David and says, I commit myself to you, I trust in you, and I will serve you. And then Jonathan um, hatches this elaborate plan with the arrows in verses 18 to 23, uh, you know, this, this sign that will tell David whether or not Saul wants to kill him. And he does this, I think, because he knows, he really does know deep down Saul's watching him, doesn't trust him, and so he needs to find a way of telling David without actually speaking to him. Okay, very interesting, but what's the relevance for us tonight? As far as I'm aware, the Queen has never come to a service here. It's only a short way away, and if you're tuning into the live broadcast, Your Majesty, you're very welcome anytime. But everybody here is minor royalty. We're all minor royalty in the sense that we all act like kings and queens in our own little lives. I'll do what I want to do. I have the right to do what I want to do. And the greatest decision any of us ever face is who will rule my life? There is one crown, and I can wear it, and I can do what I want to do, or I can hand it over to the rightful king, Jesus Christ. 
He might not seem very promising in this world. He's not seen as much in the eyes of people who matter in this world. But he is God's anointed king. And look, you see from the first half here, just a picture, that to follow Jesus means to give him the crown of life. It means he rules. It means I do what Jesus says when it comes to how I treat the vulnerable and the poor and the oppressed. It means I do what Jesus says when it comes to how I spend my money. It means I do what Jesus says when it comes to how I use my body. It means I do what Jesus says when it's a question of whether I'm honest and it might cost me. It means I do what Jesus says when I'm struggling to forgive someone who's hurt me. So the question comes, when push comes to shove, if you call yourself a Christian, when there are difficult decisions to make, who do you listen to? Whose voice holds sway in the decisions of life? Is it friends, wider culture, or does Jesus wear the crown? Who wears the crown in your life? Well, the first half of the passage is about Jonathan committing himself to David, handing the crown to David. The second half shows actually what that commitment then costs Jonathan, where he loses everything, really. Verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That's why he has not come to the king's table. Jonathan betrays a little bit more than I think he means to in verse 29. The word get away is literally escape. He reports, David said, let me escape. Now, as an aside, should he have lied? Well, the text doesn't tell us what he should do or shouldn't have done. It just says he did. At the very least, Saul doesn't deserve the truth because Saul wants to use the information to kill him. Now, most of the time when I'm wondering whether to lie, it's because I want to protect or promote my reputation rather than admit the truth. It's very different, this. This is about protecting somebody else's life. But Saul's response... I think he sees through it. Saul's response is a volcanic eruption of rage. Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Nice way to talk about his wife. Don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What's he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew his father intended to kill David. <laughs> There's understatement. Do you notice he doesn't use, Saul doesn't use the names of Jonathan and David, and that is hugely significant. Jonathan is his biological son, and David, Saul has taken into his house as his son. He's given him his daughter in marriage, and he literally, in uh, chapter 24, calls David, David, my son. But here, as Saul disowns David, 
He also disowns Jonathan because of Jonathan's commitment to David. And neither are addressed as his sons. David is the son of Jesse and Jonathan is the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. He really is, he really is a twisted man by this point. And he then flings a spear at Jonathan. Now, as we'll see in coming weeks, Saul's spear is a very significant thing as we go through the story. It's kind of the emblem of his paranoid violence, but also his impotence. Because for a mighty warrior, he's pretty useless at throwing spears at people a few feet away. He never manages to hit his target. Now, the final verse, or the next verse, is, is stunning when you think about it. Verse 34. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. His own father has just disowned him in public and thrown a spear at him. But what angers Jonathan is Saul's treatment of David. Extraordinary. But I think the key to note here in the way that Samuel, the author, has recorded these events, he wants us to see that as Jonathan commits himself to David, he's treated like David. That's the point. As Jonathan commits himself to David, so he's treated like David. Saul disowns him as a son, just as he disowns David. Saul throws a spear at him to kill him, just as he did to David in chapter 18. In other words, to side with God's anointed king means to suffer the rejection and hatred that God's anointed king suffers. So it's no surprise that a thousand years later, David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, when he faced rejection and hatred, as he prepared to be betrayed and then condemned and then tortured and then executed, he said this to his followers, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Uh, one of the most respected organizations that works with um, people persecuted for religious faith is Open Doors. And they estimate that 360 million Christians around the world face something between serious discrimination and outright persecution. And it's a number that's just been rising in recent years. Uh, for instance, in Myanmar, since the military coup of 2021, the, the, dicta the military dictatorship have used the army to, to brutally attack all sorts of minority groups. And Christians have been particularly targeted. In areas where they think there might be rebel groups, the, the Buddhist monasteries have been left alone, but they've shelled and burned um, Christian churches. Uh, one of the Open Doors workers on the ground, Shui Wei, reported that she'd seen villages with lots of Christians just burned to ground by the troops. And in some cases, the women and children driven out into the jungle while the men were rounded up and shot and left in shallow graves. They hated me, they'll hate you, Jesus says. Now, let's keep some perspective, please, in this room. We don't face that in this country. We may be mocked, ridiculed, cancelled, rejected. I know some here have been. And of course, it is always possible that people are mocking or rejecting us as Christians because we're behaving in a very obnoxious way. Yes, that's some of us here. <laughs> They're all of us at times. All of us at times have copped grief because we've deserved it. But the point is, if you ally yourself with Jesus, then even if you are loving and gracious, there's every chance that at times we'll be treated the way Jesus was treated. Your life will be harder. There'll be a cost. I remember talking to one guy here. He said, look, if I let people in the office know I'm a Christian, you have no idea 
My boss has made it very clear what he thinks of Christians. He will view me as weak, and that'll be my prospects gone. And so the challenge comes, will we be like Jonathan? At the very most basic level, am I willing to own publicly? I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus with my colleagues, uni mates, friends, even when I know that they despise the Lord Jesus. Well, the big question, of course, is why on earth would you do that? It's a great sales pitch. Uh, Come and give up your right to do what you want, and it'll make your life harder. Who's in? Well, we see in the last verses, Jonathan, what he gets is friendship of God's anointed king, and that's what's on offer to you and me tonight too. Verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? A sign for David. Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. That was the agreed sign, but obviously they they have a look and realize there's nobody around. And so with the coast clear, Jonathan and David emerged to say farewell. After the boy had gone, verse 41, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to town. Now, some modern um, commentators see these verses and their declaration of love at the beginning of the passage and say, uh, and and also what David says after Jonathan's death, plot spoiler, sorry, but they they say, well, they must have been lovers. They must have had a sexual relationship. But there's, there's zero evidence of that in any ancient text in here to support it. The problem is we live in a culture where the 850 people who you know because they know somebody who you once knew on social media are counted as your friends. When we have that as the category of friends, we struggle to to fit this into the category of friends. But the suspicious thing is it's actually not David and Jonathan's relationship. It's our culture. We're very, very impoverished when we think the only way for two people to have a rich, deep, committed involvement in each other's lives is if they're having sex. Actually, we need the kind of friendships that, well, are pretty normal in most traditional cultures and that are modeled between David and Jonathan. And I have to say, one of the things you gain from following Jesus is a shared identity and purpose that is so deep that you can have the most extraordinarily rich friendships across cultures, and ages, and all sorts of other barriers. Now, the focus of 1 Samuel 20 is really Jonathan's commitment to David, this this picture of what does it mean for us to put our trust in King Jesus. Uh, Jonathan gives up everything, but what he gets in return is friendship with David, which doesn't look that great a deal when you think about it. So he he loses the throne, He loses his relationship with his father. He loses his public reputation, having been shamed. And even his life is put at risk, all for friendship with a fugitive. But it's friendship with a fugitive who will one day become the mighty king. 
And to be a Christian is to be willing to give up all sorts of things. My right to run my life, my good reputation, I stand and say, I'm a sinner. My standing in society in many ways doesn't look a great trade in this world. It's, it's not the path of social acceptance. You know, see what happens if you turn up at work tomorrow and say to your colleagues over lunch, I've begun to follow Jesus. It's the best thing ever, and I'd love to tell you all about it. How's that conversation going over lunch for most of us? But this despised, rejected man, Jesus, he rose from the dead, and he will one day return as the almighty king of the universe. Now, Jonathan, well, he'll die before David can repay his loyalty, which puts us in a much better position than Jonathan because we've seen what Jesus does for his friends. There's a wonderful verse later on in John's gospel where Jesus, the night before he died, declares this, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. It's amazing that he declares that. And baptism is a picture of what we gain from friendship with Jesus. You want to know what's, what's in the trade? If you take off the crown in your own life, if you're willing to stand with Jesus, what do you get from it? We saw earlier. Going down into the water, that visceral image. So we put our trust in Jesus. We find all our sins paid for. His death has paid for all of them. Every wrong thing I've thought and said and done, all the ways we failed to love God and other people, he paid for it all and he washes all the guilt, all the shame away. And coming up out of the water is like a, a rebirth as God gives us by his Holy Spirit, new life in Jesus Christ, unbreakable eternal life that can punch through death. So now we don't need to be afraid of death. That last and most terrifying enemy has lost its sting. Friendship with King Jesus is worth the cost because he alone can deal with your sins and he alone can bring you safely through death. And wonderfully, he is not ashamed to call us friends for all our fickleness and our failing of him. He, the great king of the universe, is happy to own you and say, this is my friend. I'm happy to die for them and I'm happy to welcome them. So look at baptism. Look at baptism and remember what Jesus does for his friends. Why would you not want the friendship of this king? So maybe it's, a, it's all a bit, um, this is all a bit alien and foreign to you. And I would just encourage you, take the time as an adult to look into the claims of Jesus. The only man to have died and risen from the dead and never die again. Take the time to look into his claim. The only one to have gone to die in your place to pay for your sins. Take the time to read a gospel account and find out whether it's true. But for all of us, Saul is right in verse 31. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. <laughs> David is a threat to Jonathan's rule and Jesus is a threat to you. He is a threat to every one of us. I cannot be the true king while he lives. And I cannot remain, I cannot have both friendship with 
Jesus and cling to my desire to rule. I've got to choose. I've got to choose. It's a choice you make decisively when you become a Christian and get baptized. But the truth is that every morning when I get dressed, there's an article of clothing I'm tempted to put on, and it is the crown. Not the toy crown my children have got, but a, the crown, the metaphorical crown of my life. I'm tempted to put it back on to do what I want to do, to serve me and my needs. And every day there are moments of decision when I have to choose, will I serve me and myself or will I obey King Jesus? And so every day I need to pray, Jesus, you died to pay for my sins. You rose to give me new life. You gave me those things freely. Now help me trust and obey you as the king of my life. Let's pray together as we close. Our Father God, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus is our true king. Help us to repent of the ways in which we failed to obey him and been unwilling to stand up and own allegiance to him. Help us to see the blessing and privilege that is ours if we, if we will come to put our trust in him, to see in his death and resurrection blessings that make it more than worthwhile to follow this king. And in his name we pray. Amen.